First Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Good evening. It is good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here. Always thankful. We are continuing our discussion this evening of salvation and sanctification. Uh, we began that last week, and as we said, there'll be several uh, sermons as we move forward through the year about sanctification. But we began by trying to note the differences between the two. And last week, we talked a lot about salvation, exactly what it means. And so, uh, without you know any further introduction or anything, we'll just jump in right there and continue. I, I don't really have a stop point tonight other than the clock, and so at some point I'll look down and look up, and then that'll be that. <laughs> but it, it won't mean that our study is done. We'll just resume it again at another time. What we were talking about last week with regards to salvation, it really it is, and, and this may be the ultimate difference in it, salvation is a one-time action. This is not something that needs to be revisited. If it's done according to God's word, then it's done. Uh, and we're not obviously talking about once saved, always saved, but that is a wrong doctrine about the nature of salvation. But sometimes when we, in our quest to, to avoid sounding like the denominations, and, and, and obviously we don't want to teach error, it's important, though, to frame things biblically. The Bible certainly teaches that once you do this and are saved, you don't have to do that again. Uh, if you interpret that to mean once saved, always saved, well, you've misinterpreted. But that is a one-time action. So it's important to understand that. It's also important to understand why, yes, absolutely, a person can forfeit their salvation. Old Testament Israel is an example, and there are New Testament examples. And again, God wouldn't warn if it wasn't possible. It's a very real concern. It has happened, and it does happen. Again, however, saying that does not mean that when a person is saved, then their salvation is tenuous, that they can't be certain, that every step is an uncertain one, and we're not ever really sure. Once saved, always saved is wrong doctrinally. But once saved, never sure, that's also a non-biblical doctrine. And that one shouldn't be given way to in avoidance of the other one. So we talked about the fact that when you are saved, God's expectation then becomes sanctification. Saved people live holy lives because they're saved. It works this way in both covenants. In Leviticus 11, and we'll just be bouncing backwards and forwards here. As briefly, we talk about Old Testament Israel. Look back with me at Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. And this is not the only time it's said. I think in the King James Version of the Bible, the word holy or some variation of it appears over 90 times in the book of Leviticus. It is the book of holiness. It is the book of sanctification for Old Testament Israel. The expectations of God and for his faithful people are in this book. Here is how they are to live, and they are to be dedicated to Jehovah. 
In Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, Moses says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, or be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. 45 repeats, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. When were the children of Israel saved? Well, they were saved back in Exodus 14, 30 and 31, where the Bible says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day. When they passed through the cloud and the sea, they were saved. They were God's people. In fact, that's how it's couched in the New Testament. Hold your finger there and listen to the Apostle Paul talk about it in 1 Corinthians 10. He actually uses that language. They were saved on this occasion. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul that connects that salvation to baptism. He does that. Sometimes, again, gospel preachers get accused of making everything about the you people. Are. Listen, it's just what the Bible says. You can read it in your book, too. It's not me. It's the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says beginning in verse number 1. Now, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to save people. What does he say? Moreover, brethren, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Who's he talking to? People who have been baptized. The Corinthians, they've been baptized. They would know what that means. Acts 18 and verse number 8, many of the Corinthians hearing believe were baptized. To those people, Paul now writes, you know Old Testament Israel was baptized too. Not to Christ, but to Moses. And they were saved. They all passed through the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized under Moses. What happened in the cloud and in the sea? They did all eat the same spiritual meat. They did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Another sermon, another day. If we're in chapter 10, you know what's happening in Corinth in chapter 10? They're having a problem with the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking. He says, listen, brethren, there was a group of people that all were baptized, that were all saved. They all drank of the spiritual drink. They all drank of the spiritual, ate of the spiritual meat. You did the same thing, brethren. You all passed through the water. You all were baptized unto Christ. There is a spiritual meat and drink, and you're abusing it. As a result of that, he's now moving into sanctification. He's working seamlessly back and forth, and he's telling them, listen, your behavior is unacceptable to God and puts you in a bad light with God, and you should use them as an example, because he does. Note the very next verse. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the will. What's he talking about? They weren't living right. They weren't sanctified. They didn't consecrate themselves. They did not live the holy life he called upon them to live. Brethren, what will happen to you in Corinth if you persist? You too will put yourself at risk. It's not a matter of if it can happen. It's certainly it's possible, and they're both 
always present. There's salvation, and then the saved are called upon to live holy lives. And when that's not done, then God is not pleased. And you'll notice, if you just go back and read it slowly, you'll read the word all about four times. All, 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 but with many. They didn't all make it. They all went through, all saved, didn't all live sanctified. It's the way it works in both covenants. The same is true in the New Testament. After we are saved, Romans 6, 3, and 4, 2 Timothy 2, 10, we get into the place where salvation is. We've now left the world. We've become Christians. We are part of God's family. What does God want from us? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and listen to Peter quote Leviticus 11 and call upon God's people to live the exact same way. One of them is a one-time action. Now that you are saved, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 14, Peter says, as obedient children, a lot like Paul saying brethren, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. Who are they? They're God's children. That means they're saved. And Paul says, or Peter does, as obedient children. Don't live like your former life, not anymore, because you're now part of God's family. You used to live that way, but don't live that way anymore. Don't live according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. How? In all manner of conversation. That's your entire life the deportment and comportment of your life, your manner of living, all manner of conversation, not just verbally, but the entirety of the life that you live. Give that and dedicate that to God. Why? Because it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy. We are now talking about that section of sanctification, holy living, the motivation is salvation. My salvation is secured. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. What he did on the cross, we talked about it this morning, his death, his burial, his resurrection, my submission to the good news of Jesus. He washed me, saved me, justified. I'm now saved. Okay, you're saved. Now what? Now you'd be holy. What does that mean? Peter describes it as a process of growth. Look there in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, the Bible will, and it will again use a lot of different words and analogies to describe the process of growth and maturation. Peter likens it to a, a new baby. Therefore, verse number 1 says, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all uh, hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for or desire the pure milk of the word. Why? So that you may grow by it in respect to salvation. That's how the NASB words it. King James would simply say that you may grow thereby. What are we talking about? Well, you've been born again. Now what? Grow. Grow in 2 Peter 3, 18, Peter would say, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, I would urge if you were reading the epistles to read them with this understanding, that largely what you're reading are books and letters written to people who are saved, 
usually, if not always, talking to them about their salvation, leading into their sanctification. That's what the New Testament books are. There is a sense, and someone has argued with me uh, in the past, and so I feel the need to, to say this, there is a sense in which sanctification occurs at salvation. That the very act of being saved is being set apart. That's true. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 2, that's how the Apostle Paul refers to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, called saints. There is a sense in which that occurs the moment in which you're saved because you have been set apart by that salvation to God and for God. And from there, there is a second use, which is what we're talking about, the ongoing growth, if you will, from that which is like a babe on up to Ephesians 4 to a full-grown or mature man in Christ. Spiritual maturation. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 7 last week where Paul twice says in that passage, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. But look at 2 Timothy 2 as well where Paul again talks about it there with Timothy. And on this occasion, he talks about it in reference to a great house and a variety of vessels within the house ultimately having use by the master or being meet for his use. We usually quote verse 15, but let's begin at verse 14, where Paul says to Timothy, with reference to Timothy's job toward the church, remind them, the brethren, the church, remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Instead, verse 15, be diligent, King James, study. But be diligent, more proper the meaning. Take every effort, make every effort, take pains. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Would you please help yourself understand that that's also you? You be diligent to present yourself to God. A workman who needed not to be ashamed accurately handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. But he continues again, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them that are Hymenaeus and Philetus. The men, he says, who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset or overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to do what? It could just as well say, live holy lives. What it does say is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood, of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, noted, sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. You can see the analogy in a great house, he says. Well, obviously, the house would be the church. 
1 Timothy 3, 15, 16. Here, though, for analogy's sake, in a great house, what are there? There are vessels of gold and silver. Generally speaking, people have value, valuable things in their house. In the great house, there's all these objects. But in every house, there's not just gold and silver. There's also mops and brooms and dustpans. But they're all useful. Doesn't matter that the vessels compare themselves one to another. What matters is the usefulness of the vessel. And what he says is, let everyone cleanse himself, purge himself, commit himself to living a holy life. Why? So that you can be useful to the master of the house. That is how Christians should see their lives after salvation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I am trying to grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord and my Savior. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to mature and to become more and more made in his image, to get closer to him, that my spirit might be in line with his spirit. My mind might be in harmony with his mind. Paul would just flat out say it. Let this mind be in you. Why? What will happen then? You'll be meat for the master's use. God has use for you. That's lived and that's realized through holy living and sanctified lives. Let me just add very quickly, holy living is possible, first of all. It's possible. It, it ought to be the way saints view their lives. It's possible for several reasons. One of them is God says in 1 John 5 and verse number 4, his commands are not grievous. They're not burdensome. God is not asking us great things by way of some physical accomplishment. Like Naaman, the, the servant said, if he had bid you some great thing, do you know how hard people would begin to work if God made it hard? Do you know how people would rejoice if God said, you can get to heaven as soon as you climb Everest? Where are you going this week, Everest? Oh, I'm excited. What you been doing, training? I can't wait. What's going to happen? I'm going to do whatever it takes. But you're in a wheelchair. I got a lift. Oh, I figured out a way. But you can't even do it. Oh, I can't wait. If God made it hard, oh, man, the people would be so excited. Do you know there is a rare gem somewhere in the world? God has placed it here. Told me if I find it and when I find it, I can come to What are you doing? Every resource I got, I have been Googling and map questing and searching. I'm going to find it. That too old map quest? <laughs> hey, it comes on the fly sometimes. It just happens. It just whew. People would just, just so be thankful. For, you know what God says? Love, mercy, do justly, walk humbly with your God. Oh. Well, nobody can do that. Yeah, everybody could do that. What would it take? Some diligence, some self-discipline. His commands are not grievous. That's what he says in 1 John 5 and verse number 4. Why can I do this? Because your sins are already forgiven. Look back at Psalm 32 and verse 1 and verse number 2. This passage is actually in the Old Testament, so it's spoken to God's people in the Old Testament, but it's quoted in the New Testament. Notice what it says. God has freed us to be holy. He's incentivized us to be holy. He hasn't made it so difficult. And you can do it because you're already forgiven. If you've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, your sins are washed away. Go live holy. You can do that. 
Psalm 32 and verse number one, the Bible says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Wait a minute, that's in New Testament. No, that's in the Old Testament. That's Psalm 32 and verse number one. Do you mean they were blessed people in the Old Testament? Absolutely. How blessed is he whose transgression is covered, whose sin is forgiven? Christ hasn't come yet when that's penned. What are they blessed? Why? Sin is forgiven. The sacrifices work sufficiently because Christ is coming. Verse number two says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. He will not hold it against you. Doesn't keep a list. Doesn't keep a running tally. He forgives. Paul does quote this in Romans chapter four, though, to God's people. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. Why can I live a holy life? You've already been forgiven. Go live holy. Go, give, go live a sanctified life because you already have peace. We touched on it this morning, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. He is our peace. You're not at odds with God anymore. If you're saved, you're already at peace with God. John would go further and say, you have eternal life. It's actually what he says, 1 John 5, verse number 11. Sometimes, again, people hear the words of the Bible, and they suddenly say, well, Eric, you can't say that and just leave it there. That, listen, that's just what the Bible says. Well, don't go around telling people they have eternal life, and then they won't want to live right. No, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. It's because you have eternal life that you go live right. Because if you change your heart and your mind, you can walk away from the eternal life which you have. See John 5, Luke 15. The son did leave the house. He packed up his things. He walked out of the father's. Let me ask you, what did he have before he left? He had the house. <laughs> he had the inheritance. It was his. In fact, he said, give it to me. And he did. Then he packed up his things and walked out of the father's house. Wouldn't it have been much more wonderful to stay because you have it? John says in 1 John 5 and verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us, past tense, has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Why can I do it? It's possible because you have it already. Go live like a person who has possession of eternal life. There is incentive and motivation to live holy because we have no need to worry, Philippians 4, 6 through 8. We didn't say it this morning, but Paul does. The peace of God passes all understanding. Let your, be anxious for nothing. You know what a man's soul is saved when he's at peace with God, when he has eternal life, when his sins are forgiven. It's one of the reasons that they just could not seem to make Paul worry. Paul, if you keep preaching, we'll arrest you. They did. He kept preaching. Paul, if you keep preaching, we'll beat you five times. Was I beaten 39 stripes? If you keep preaching, we'll put you in prison. Rejoice in the Lord always from prison. And again, I say rejoice. You know, we just can't seem to get. No, you cannot get to a man who has nothing to worry about because his soul is already secure. Try as they might. I tell you what, around midnight, after we put him in the stocks and after we beat him, we're going to go check on him, see how he's doing at midnight. And somebody must have said, you hear that? They're singing and praying. That's what Paul and Silas are doing. This can be done because there's nothing to worry about. Christ's blood will keep cleansing. What if I stumble? If you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, 
will cleanse us from all sin. Now, I will caution you. When you have thought about this incorrectly for so long, everything I'm saying will be unsettling, and it will sound untrustworthy, and it will flat out sound wrong. I don't mind telling you that. And feel, I feel like I have to. Because it will sound like to the, to the ear that has been working on every day I get up, I'm going to live holy to be saved, to that ear, yeah, everything I'm saying right now will sound very unsettling and unnerving. Now, it will sound good and inviting, except the mind has been not trained to receive it yet, and so it will be like Bambi. You'll stumble and struggle a while to embrace it and accept it and then wear it. It'll, it'll be a minute, and that's fine. That's part of the process. When Paul talked about grace and faith in the book of Romans, you remember the reaction of some, at least as he perceived it and anticipated it. They said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's not what Paul was saying at all, but that's exactly how they heard it. Why they were coming from this mindset. They were coming from, my works are going to get me there. If I dot the T's, cross the I's, keep the law, that law is going to make sure that I'm saved. Paul said, he starts talking about grace. Saved by grace, given freely. Nothing you did. God's law. And they said, what? Okay, wait a minute. So sin brought grace. Let me get this right. Okay. And grace says, and we don't have to do anything to get God to love us and get God to send Christ. I got you. So then what you're saying is, we, it doesn't matter what we do. I'll just keep sinning to get, no. And that's not what I'm saying to you. But as you move forward in your mind and heart and thinking, and as you at last accept that Christ and your submission of heart and will and obedience to the gospel, that that puts you in a once-for-all saved state in the house, a child of God. And God says, I love you. We're good now. Go and develop the family's image and likeness, which is holiness. You will change your thoughts and minds and begin to get up motivated to be holy. Sanctification then involves spiritual maturation. That's what we're talking about. And it's God's expectation of us. Have your Bibles. Look over at the book of Romans. Let's talk a little bit there, and we'll move on as quickly as we can with regards to a few other chapters and books and this will be an ongoing thing, and so again, I don't really have a particular marching points to stop. We'll just stop when we stop. But here in Romans chapter 12, you sometimes will hear gospel preachers talk about Paul's writing in particular because of his style and the way he arranges his, his thoughts relative to the book. And you will hear them often describe Paul as doctrinal first and then practical. That's a, that's a very good way to really say what we're talking about. That, that doctrinal piece really is talking about salvation and how it's affected through Jesus Christ. That, that takes up usually the first part of Paul's writings. It's not always an, an even dynamic within a book. Books like Ephesians and Colossians are more rare, where you could quite literally say almost right down the center of the book. The first three chapters, doctrinal, the second three, practical, or in Colossians, the first two, and then the second two. You can do that with some of Paul's writings, but by and large, it does fall out this way. To saved people, 
answering questions of error relating to salvation, explaining prophecies and other things related to Christ and his coming and what he has actually done for us. Usually, when Paul's writing at any way, with a bit toward correcting the errors of Judaism and those false teachers coming into the body to disrupt it, usually explaining things even about the law and how it actually worked versus what they interpreted to be, and then moving to now as a result of what God has done through Christ you go live this way, sanctification. In the book of Romans, I would probably say the first 11 chapters are on this side. And from 12 on would probably fall out more over here. But it's not accidental that you get to chapter 12 and the first word in verse 1 is therefore. Well, why are you opening with therefore? because he's been drawing a long thought about Jew and Gentile and God's way of working and bringing the Christ to ultimately save all mankind, not just the Jews. But having made the case, as he ends chapter 11 in particular, talking about the natural branches and the wild olive branch that was grafted in, the Jews being the natural branch, the Gentiles being grafted in, now all in Christ. After he has gone over this entire thing about faith and justification and how it works, he moves to holy living. And this is not untypical. But when you read a chapter like chapter 12 of Romans, and you read chapter 13 with reference to the government, and you read chapter 14 with how we interact with, that's why. This is sanctification. This is holy living. This is growing up in Christ. Read just a few passages with me. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Hopefully you're seeing how we could stop right there and spend easily the rest of our time together here tonight but even beyond that, talking about the import of the first two verses. But listen to all of that language as it relates to what God has done through Christ and what now they are and what the expectation is for them to do. Again, you can't get up in the morning saying, I'm going to, I'm going to take the day as it comes and I'm going to try to avoid stepping in any sin and I hope that by the end of the day, I can get back to the house, and maybe if I have dodged enough sin and didn't do enough wrong, I can maybe pillow my head at night and, and make it. Listen, you can't, don't, you can't keep living like that. You, you can't keep living like that. No, you get up living like as a saved person, as one who is part of God's family. I'm going to take my life and present it to God as a living sacrifice. Couldn't we just drive down deep right there? When you hear the word sacrifice, 
you immediately think of a dead lamb or something, don't you? Something? You don't think of living things, you think of dead things. This is the way the scripture works. He's trying to get us to take the physical realities of sacrifice in the Old Testament and move them into the New Testament with a spiritual understanding of what that means for my living life. All the connections and things involved in a sacrifice, I'm going to do that with my life for God. Sacrifices are complete. God can have my whole life. They don't partially sacrifice animals. That's complete. Sacrifices die. I'm going to die to me. Not my will, your will be done. My will dies. I live for God. A sacrifice is it's, it's com- it's all the things that you think of, you bring those right over. How and why? As a saved person, giving my life to God. I'm not giving it to him so he can save me. I'm giving it to him because he has. And now, as a obedient child, I want to grow to be more like Jesus. I tell you what, do we have an example of what a living sacrifice looks like? Yes, it's, it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The next day, John 1:29. the next day John sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. You just follow the footsteps of Jesus and say, I want to live like that. Listen, we always, we, we just seem to get to the, <laughs> we're trying to get to the right place. We just get there the wrong way. So we want people to do that, and then we start telling things like, and that's why you need to put your phone down. That's why you need to stop watching Netflix, and that's why you need to. Listen, I don't have to tell you to stop watching Netflix and, and, and binging. I don't have to tell you to put the computer. I don't have to tell you to put your phone down. You tell me, how else are you going to get closer to Jesus if you don't take the time to invest in getting closer to Jesus? How are you going to pull it off? You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look at his life. How are you going to do that? It immediately takes time. It immediately takes focus. It immediately takes attention. It immediately takes less of me and more of you. It immediately demands that. Who's going to do that for you? You know what we've done? Is we have robbed people of this entire process, and we've largely told them, listen, we don't know if you're saved from day to day, so you really need to focus there. And if you want to be saved, why don't you just make the assemblies? And if you'll make the assemblies, we'll count you faithful. It's not working because it's not right. You are already saved. Check. Now what? You live a living sacrifice. To who? You can't tell me what to do, Eric. I'm so glad you said that. Because it's got nothing to do with me and what I say. And right next to you, I should be trying to do the same thing. Let's keep reading. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, 
but to have the sound judgment as God has allotted to each member a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that are differing according to the grace given to each of us to exercise them according to prophecy, according to proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or in he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy. Whose love? Yours. Let it be without hypocrisy. How are you going to do that? I'm going to commit my life to being like Jesus every day. Abhor what is evil. Somebody needs to stand over your shoulder and grab your remote and tell you what's evil and what's not evil. No, you need to do that. Somebody needs to get your radio dial and turn it away from that. No, you need to do that. I believe in Paul said to Timothy, give diligence. Who's giving the diligence? You are. To do what? Give your life to God as a living sacrifice. How are you going to do that? I guess twice on Sunday, man. Maybe Wednesday. No. No, you're not. I do not want to bash God's people. I'd hate for it to sound like that. What I'm telling you is you could be led astray inside of the body. Somebody could be giving you wrong information. It could be just, quote, unquote, letting you off the hook, making it easy. We don't want to press people, tax people, make it too hard. This is about you individually and Jesus, period. Not about anybody else. Please do not be the person that sits inside of a building where the saints meet and never grow closer to God. Don't be that person. Please don't be the person who says, I made every assembly and you know nothing of the contents of the book. Please don't be the person who has to say one more time, I know it's in there somewhere. Don't you be that person. Don't you let what God did for you be reduced to that. God is not asking for a couple of days a week. He's asking for your life. And he's asking you to give it to him the way he gave his for you. This is a one-to-one -one deal. You and your Savior. Keep reading and listen to what else he says. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Preachers, again, keep stepping in and trying to figure out a way to make you. I don't want to make you. In fact, I couldn't. People keep, preachers keep trying to tell you, well, you just ought to want to. Yeah, listen. Not lagging behind in diligence. That's on you, friend. Come on, let's go. Fervent in spirit. God doesn't want you to drag in here like you don't want to be here. God don't want every time his, his service or some service related to him is involved, you say, again, you're lagging in spirit. Not lagging, being diligent fervent in spirit, doing what? Serving the Lord. Please don't get confused. It's not that that makes you saved. It's that because you are saved. What does God and having done with Christ for you, what does that mean to you? That's the question. What does it mean to me? Does it mean I'm willing to do this to learn more? That's, that's the question. 
And friends, every one of us can and has to make this decision for ourselves. And sure enough, like any family, there'll always be an arc within a, a, a particular body of the Lord's people. There'll always be people who have just entered the family like a babe, always in need of then help and, and love and support, and you missteps happen? Absolutely. And then as you go up the curve, there'll be people who've been in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. Now, please don't hear this as time alone creates maturation. I don't mean that. But I just mean that by the process of people being and hopefully living, there'll always be a curve of people, different stages, which is why we always have the challenges that we have. There's always a babe. There's always a person on fire, zeal, but not according to knowledge. There's somebody without tact. There's somebody who I just tell the truth. There's some, I just say it the way. There's always these people within a body. There's nothing wrong with the body. If you have multiple children and you bring home a newborn babe and you have a five-year-old, these two people are not in the same place. And if you have a five-year-old and a ten-year-old, these people don't have the same level of expectations. And then if you have a 20-year-old, I'm not trying to give you a lot of children, but for sake of discussion, <laughs> you got four, five, and they're all at different, you would expect that you would be into it. Same thing true in the body. Listen, which one are you? Where are you? This is, the, you know what the Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Doesn't ask anybody else to examine you. God is always placing his love for you in your lap. He's always saying that. Effectively, I love you. I know the number of hairs on your head, that I am aware of you, and I did this for you. And so all of the expectations and all of the things related to growth, they fall out to you. And the motivation is always, I loved you first. I gave to you. How much did you give? All. It's one of the reasons that we, we sometimes just short God with some of our nice phrases like, give God your best. Mm. Mm. Best ain't good enough, truth be told, because he wants your all. He wants all of it. He wants all of you. He doesn't want your best and then go on and live your life. No, he wants you. He wants all of you. He gave you all of Christ. This is the nature, though, here in Romans chapter 12. This is just a small Please keep reading. You get home, keep reading. This is sanctification. God will tell us what he expects. You can just read it here from verse 9 on. He'll just flat out tell you. And then he'll tell you how to become what he expects. And so you'll read passages like, um, passages like James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh endurance. God is telling us, how is this going to work? Your faith is going to need to be tried. It is the trying of your faith that leads to endurance. You can't just go craft a very nice faith, put it on the shelf, and hope it never gets disturbed. No, it's not the way it works at all. In order to grow, there must be bumps and bruises along the way. Anybody ever left the crib, made it to adulthood, and never fell down? Never have a scrape? Never have a scar? 
never have a bump. I know there's a lot of parents that when you came home for the very first day, they effectively said, these feet are never going to touch the ground. <laughs> they kissed your feet for a while. But then those feet did touch the ground and start running around, sometimes without socks and shoes, and they stopped being kissed. After a while, your parents start saying like, okay, get up. You're okay. Everybody falls. You're going to make it. Come on now. Work with you. Okay. I know. Just brush it off. Mom, it's a broke arm, Dad. Yeah, brush it off. <laughs> You're going to be, let me blow on it. And it's all, but no, it, we... How are you going to grow as a Christian? James said your faith is going to be tried. It's going to be challenged. And if you go through that, it will grow and endure. Seems as good a place as any to stop right there, and so we will. We'll continue our discussion about sanctification and maturation and focus on some other things and see it in some other passages, how it's accomplished, other uh, exhortations from the New Testament. We didn't make it. Let's read one more verse, and, and we'll at least end here. Paul says over in verse number 16, I want you to be thinking about this. Go through the, 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 the New Testament epistles and go through Paul's writing in particular, and well, Peter and James does it too, but read a word like this where he says in verse 16, be of the same mind. There is this statement in Scripture where it would just say, be something. Be kind one to another. Be forgiving. Be compassionate and tender. It will just tell you to be, let me ask you this, how are you going to just do that? It just tells you to do it. Be that. Right now. Not tomorrow, next week. Be that. How are you going to do that? This is the process of sanctification. What if you woke up every morning with the intentionality of being that one day? Then you would be in the process of becoming that. You won't ever be it if you're not becoming it. This is sanctification. You're going to have to give the diligence, the attention, and the intentionality of becoming more and more like Jesus so one day you can be like Jesus. Not a Christian tonight become one because none of this will mean much of anything if you aren't saved. You have to be saved to be God's child. And we're talking about life in God's family, living holy, becoming more and more like our Lord. To do that, you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins, and where I am, you cannot come. You have to change your heart and your mind, and we'll talk about that next time with regards to repentance. It is a change of mind. Jesus said, if you don't, you'll perish. Confess the name of Jesus. Be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And God and Christ will take you from lost to saved. He will sanctify you one time. And then you can, as Paul says to the Roman brethren, walk in newness of life. If you've never done that, we beg you to do that tonight.
if you have done that, please commit yourself to giving your life to God as a living sacrifice, body, soul, mind, so that we can be sanctified more and more like him. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.